Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 40th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Philip Palaviv. Philip is the founder and CEO of The Ensemble Practice, a practice management consulting firm that helps financial advisors to build sustainable, multi-advisor, multi-generational ensemble firms. What's fascinating about Philip, though, is not merely the consulting work that he does to help advisors build ensemble firms, but that he's actually the one who coined the phrase, ensemble practice during his early days working on the Moss Adams advisor benchmarking studies over 15 years ago and later wrote the book on the subject. In this episode, we talk in depth about the concept of an ensemble practice, the different ways that advisors can share office, staff, clients, profits, and ultimately equity in becoming a multi-professional advisory firm, and what it really means to create an advisory business that truly puts the interests of the business before the interests of any one advisor partner. Along with why, as the business grows, it becomes crucial to create a means of quality control to ensure that, with multiple advisors, the advice of the firm really is delivered consistently. We also discuss the dynamics of what it takes to actually introduce a new second generation, or G2, owner to the firm. The mindset shift that advisory firm owners need to go through if they want to find and develop the right new advisors. And the answer to the age-old question of whether G2 advisors should purchase or be given their equity shares. And be certain to listen to the end where Philip shares his tips and wisdom about what G2 advisors should bear in mind as they pursue a path to partnership and what founders need to do to ensure a G2 transition is successful which Philip can speak to not only as a consultant, but as someone who himself has both become a partner in a larger consulting firm and been a founder who's brought in his own G2 partner to his consulting practice. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Philip Palaviv. Welcome, Philip Palaviv, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Good morning or good afternoon for you, Michael. Pleasure to be here. I'm I'm excited to have you on. I followed your work for I don't know probably 15 odd years or so since you worked in in Moss Adams Consulting doing RA benchmarking with Mark Tabergian and Rebecca Pomering and and as far as I know you're actually the one that set forth this term that we all use today of calling successful multi-advisor practices ensemble practices. And so I'm 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 excited to have you on as like the the progenitor of the ensemble practice label just to to talk to us about practice management and the and the the growth towards larger firms and all the dynamics that go with that. But I, I guess starting point like so correct me if I'm wrong the ensemble practice did come from you originally like that that's that was the start. I I legitimately can claim ownership of that label or at least the for the disuse of that label. It was kind of a funny story and a peculiar one, as most stories tend to be, but not to belabor it too much. But really what happened was, I think it was the year 2000 or 2001, and me and a gentleman by the name of Dustin Highland were entry-level analysts in Moss Adams, sitting in a cubicle together. Literally, we had one of these small cubicle desks. 
And we are crunching the numbers of what turned out to be the first big FPA benchmarking study of the industry. It was the first sizable benchmarking study of the industry. And of course, Mark Tuberson was leading that project, but Dustin and I were charged with crunching the numbers and writing the report. And we were looking to explore what are the characteristics that make a practice successful. Even at the time, we weren't talking so much about a business or a firm. We were talking about successful practices. And by the way, curiously enough, back in those days, a large practice was a practice with more than 500000 in revenue. That was Those were the largest practices. So that would be like $50 million under management at 1% was a big practice at the time. That, would, that was a big deal, how times changed. But yes. you know, 17, 18 years ago, that, was, that would have made you one of the bigger practices in the industry. So Dustin and I are looking at the characteristics of successful practices. And of course, one of the obvious ones is that larger practices, particularly practices with multiple advisors, with multiple professionals in them, tend to be bigger and more profitable. Somewhat of an obvious statement, but probably a statement that's worth repeating. And we were looking for a way to describe these multi-professional practices, multi-practitioner, multi-advisor, multi-partner. So we're trying all these multi-permutation labels. But Michael, you'll probably appreciate this. You know how Excel is, you've got to put a label on a column and you've got to squeeze it into a cell. Yes, a cell of of limited width because if it's yeah. too long, it gets truncated by the next cell that's you know got another column label in it. Exactly, and we're trying to you know juxtapose three four columns next to each other, so we're looking for shorter descriptor. And multi professional is a very long one; it just doesn't fit very well. So I literally remember talking to Dustin and going like, "Okay, give me something. Give me something that describes multiple people working together." So obviously, team in those kinds of terms, we're trying, but. They're not quite descriptive enough. So I'm walking around the floor, literally just opening doors and talking to people like, okay, tell me something that describes multiple people working together. And then in this sort of a solo brainstorming session, all of a sudden I ended up with the word ensemble. And then, of course, ensemble is a way of describing multiple musicians, most of all, working together and playing music together. But, of course, ensemble, also we speak French, is just the word for together. Ensemble means together in French. And that seemed to be a very good term, first of all, because it fit in the cell really well. And second of all, because it very naturally just juxtaposes with the term solo. So as soon as I came up with ensemble, it was very easy to turn around and then say, well, the other practices are going to be solo practices. And then actually later we tried a little bit, but we got carried away. And I think if you dig up the old survey, somewhere in the surveys, there's a term orchestra somewhere in there. That one didn't take off at all, but ensemble kind of stuck. And it really stuck and it played a surprising role in my personal career. To this day, that's the, the name of my firm, the Ensemble Practice. But little did I know back in 2000, 2001, that Dustin and I were going to sort of coin this term that stuck there for quite some time. And to this day, people are talking about it quite a lot. All because multi-professional didn't fit in an Excel column. I, just, I, lo- I love that that's the, that's the genesis story at the end of the day. Like if monitors were wider and we printed more things on larger paper and columns didn't need to be narrow, we might just call them multi-professional advisor firms. It's very likely. If we didn't have to copy and paste from Excel into a Word document, we probably would have stuck with the more descriptive term. But, you know, I, I do find there is actually to me an interesting distinction between just using the the label multi-professional and, and a term like ensemble. And I, I think to me, at least, it's part of why the the term resonates so well is that like the nature of an ensemble, even in the in the musical context, it's one of these 
the whole is worth more than the sum of the parts, right? Like I, I don't go to an ensemble to hear a collection of individual musicians. I go to an ensemble to hear the ensemble because what they produce together as a cohesive unit is a thing unto itself that's more than just what the individuals contribute. That to me, you, you don't get with multi-professional, right? Like there's, there's lots of advisor multi-professional firms. I'm kind of putting that in air quotes because the, they have a partnership and a shared business entity. But at the end of the day, your clients are your clients and my clients are my clients and the other guy's clients are the other guy's clients. And our shared business is really nothing more than we share the overhead, office rent, maybe a little bit of technology budget and some admin staff. But we're really like it's multiple professionals under one umbrella running three independently siloed businesses. And there's something about really like the ensemble label as no, no, it's not three people under one one umbrella. It's a three person ensemble that I think does mean something different. Like it and and not just as a literal interpretation of the word. Like I really do see these in practice in advisory firms that there are firms that run, you know, there are two or three or more people together. But they say, like, it's not my clients and your clients. These are our firm's clients, and we all own this firm as an ensemble. And they really do act differently than simply three advisors who happen to share an entity and some overhead, but my clients are my clients and your clients are your clients. I mean, the, the idea of an ensemble is it's aspirational. You know, no, no one issues certifications for ensemble businesses. It's not like the ensemble practice will give you a certificate that says you are now a true ensemble. Being an ensemble is an aspiration, and really is the aspiration to do things together, to put the firm, to put the business first, as opposed to put your own interest first. Much like advisors describe to clients a fiduciary relationship where the interest of the client is first, in some ways, being an ensemble is having that same fiduciary attitude towards the business, that the interest of the business goes first, before the interest of the owner, the individual advisor, and that we're committing to work together. We are committing to improve each other. We are committing to improve the business together. We are committing to take care of that business together. And then to share, to share clients, to share revenues, to share profit, to share equity, to share our time and our passions and our interests and our talents. But it's an aspiration. I think in every business that you look at, as long as there are multiple professionals working together in some form, there's an element of an ensemble there. There's an element of camaraderie. There's an element of sharing. There's an element of trying to enhance each other. But even in the most pure firms, if you look at that firm, I think you'll find some elements of solo or silo. You'll find some elements of advisors working on their own, perhaps not sharing as much as they could, perhaps behaving in a way that even though the firm is structured as an ensemble, there are certain partners or certain advisors who will behave in a way that maybe pulls away from that idea. So it's an idea. It's an aspiration. It's not a certification, but it's a powerful idea because if we look, it's almost, you know, how in biology to distinguish the characteristics that are genetically determined versus those that are learned or acquired from the environment, they often do the twin studies where they trace what happened to two twins and the more they converged, the more it was perhaps due to genetics, and the more they diverged, the more it was perhaps due to upbringing or environment or something like that. So almost if you do the twin study of advisory firms, there's actually a number of firms that you can look at that started together. They started at the same time, but one went in the direction of actually hiring and training and developing people and working together 
and one remained as a solo practice or silo practice focused on sort of the desires and the needs of one or two professionals. And it's interesting to explore what happened. And almost invariably, you're going to find that the firms that work together achieve more. So I'm just wondering, though, I mean, could you... So so to kind of take this distinction between multi-professional firms and true ensemble firms, I'm I'm wondering, could you... Could you see a difference between them in the in the data when you were doing these benchmarking studies and and was there something in particular that that defined what what was an ensemble and 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 what was multi-professional so you, I know you said there's no official certification but like could you see differences in the results and then how did you figure out who was who and which was which yeah, you know, almost in a certain way, let's stay away from the data for a moment, but kind of if we logically examine what brings professionals together, it's almost a progression. And I think you'll find that progression if you open somewhere in the first five pages of my book, The Ensemble Practice, you'll find that progression there somewhere. But trying to replay it from memory, the easiest form of sharing is really, like you said, sharing an office. We're just going to share overhead, we're going to share a fridge, and we're going to share a receptionist. But then you have your clients and I have mine. And that sharing of overhead is perhaps step one or is perhaps the easiest form of sharing. Then the next step is really sharing the staff, sharing the teams, sharing the employees. If you and I are sharing the same support person, if you and I are sharing the same team of analysts and financial planners and perhaps portfolio managers, the same operation team, that's a more committed type of relationship. We have more at stake. It gets more complicated. We have to devote more time to sharing those resources and building those resources together. In other words, we've got to train and develop the employees that we share. So the first step is sharing overhead. The second step is sharing employees. The third step is sharing clients. And that really is perhaps the border between silo and ensembles. That once you start sharing clients, then sharing the rest of the business becomes more natural and almost inevitable. But sharing clients is very difficult. That means that you're going to stop using the term my client and you're going to use the term our client. That means that you agree to comply by our, our practice standards, not your way of doing things. You're in the singular. That you agree to perhaps invite me to some of your client meetings and you agree that I will speak to your clients and perhaps I will play a role in your client relationships. The clients will recognize me as one of the people working with them as opposed to just you being the, their advisor, their person, their trusted counselor. And sharing clients is emotionally much more difficult than sharing a fridge because our entire training goes in the direction of gaining the trust of that client and impressing them and making an impact in their life. So we, we want to be that person that makes an impact. We want to be that person that contributes to their life. And sharing that contribution, sharing that experience is perhaps not very easy. Much like with musicians, you know, if you're a singer, you want a microphone in your hand. And sharing that microphone is not easy. Just watch the Grammys sometimes. You see these solo artists trying to sing duets. It's not very easy. But once we share clients, that's the next step. And then, of course, the natural progression from there is we start sharing profits and sharing equity. Once we start sharing equity, we are really a firm. And we are, this is sort of the highest form of being an ensemble is once we don't have a business anymore, we have shares in a business, then you and I are really tied together in one form. I love that label at the end. It's when we don't have a business, we have shares in a business and we're all we're all contributing to a common whole. The distinction you made of this the the challenge of going from individual to ensemble is is 
a fascinating one to me. I mean, the, the, particularly because in our industry, you, you, you can make a phenomenal living as a solo advisor, as a highly efficient solo advisor, if you leverage technology and leverage some of the tools around you. I mean, there are people out there that make phenomenal incomes. You know, we had Matthew Jarvis on episode seven, so people can go back to kitsis.com slash seven if they want to listen. You know, Matthew's doing about a million dollars of revenue a year with one and a half support staff members and takes 83 days of vacation with 50 plus percent profit margin. I mean, it's just it's an unbelievable business. And he's an individual. And I don't think at this point, at least he doesn't particularly have aspirations to to move towards ensemble or anything else. He makes way, way, way above the average income for an American. We'll be able to pay all of his bills and put his kids through college and, and retire happily. And, and he's fine with that. And he's happy with that. And so there's an interesting distinction of who even decides to go on and try to become an ensemble practice and build a business beyond themselves when you can be so financially successful as an individual yourself? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, success, much like beauty, is, is in the eye of the beholder. If I frequently have these conversations of what are the measures of success in the advisory business, and I almost don't feel it's right for me to define what success is because almost by definition, success is something very individual. Right. I think each and every professional has to ask themselves, what, what do I consider to be measures of success? Is that achieving a certain level of income? Is that creating wealth? Is that building a larger business? Is that having happy clients? Is that going to all the soccer games of your kids? Is that playing the saxophone, which I personally would love to learn how to do? You know, there are many possibilities and there are many definitions of success. And I would probably say no advisor or no business owner should be painted in the corner by somebody else's definition. I don't have to comply with that. But also, and it's very, very dangerous to be chasing someone else's definition of success. You may very successfully achieve something you absolutely don't want. And I have frequently seen advisors who have built large businesses that they absolutely hate. So you you got to be very clear with yourself, what am I trying to achieve? Unfortunately, that clarity doesn't come until the later stages of your career. I don't think either you or I will claim to have had clarity about our careers until we were about maybe 10, 15 years into them. And so it's in the first 10, 15 years, it's very easy to chase somebody else's definition of success just to realize that's the wrong one. But I would probably say that advisors who are looking to build something of lasting value, who are looking to build a business, who really are making long-term commitments to their clients, really need to take a very good look at creating an ensemble firm because it's impossible to live up to those long-term commitments to your clients within your personal time, energy, and lifespan. Those are very vulnerable commitments. If, if I'm the only person who knows what's supposed to happen with these clients and I'm the only person who's supposed to work with these clients and I'm 65, that is a, somewhat of a dangerous proposition. Well, and I, I love just the label you gave or, or the point that you made that it, it, it may take 10, 15 years into your career just to figure out what your own definition of success really is. Like that's a, it's a really powerful point to me. I mean, I look at, even on my own career, you know, and I realized we, we basically started at the same time, you know, 99, 2000 timeframe. There were things that I thought I wanted to do to follow my career and be successful. But really, when I look back, like, basically, the decade of my 20s, I didn't really know. I mean, I sort of thought I knew some things that I wanted to do. But 
I look at where I am today and, and, you know, 10 years ago, like I didn't have a website. I didn't have a newsletter. I'd hardly ever, I'd given maybe a couple of speeches. I just started doing a tiny bit of public speaking. You know, I was working as a full-time employee in the firm. I never started a business. Like all of these things now that are so core to my life and my business and what I do that I do in part because I've, I found I really enjoy them and it, it fits my personal definition of success. Like I hadn't done any of that in at least the first eight years or so of my career. And then I finally, I think as I was coming up on 10 years in the business, realized maybe at least subconsciously I was dissatisfied with some of my initial path and started looking for other paths and then ultimately found my way to what I'm doing right now. Like there, there just really isn't effective. You, you just don't know in the early stages of your career, what, what that success definition is really going to end up being for you. You kind of find it as you go. It's kind of funny, actually, even listening about your career, because we did start at the same time. I distinctly remember where I would go to a conference and you and I would be the youngest people in the room. And yes. let's just say not anymore. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> that hasn't been the case in a long time. If I find myself to be the youngest person in the room, that's a seriously old room. You never know. You know, 25 years ago, I wanted to be an archaeologist. And then I wanted to work with software companies. I actually joined Moss Adams to work with high-tech and software companies to, to consult with them. I sort of fell backwards into this practice simply because Mark was looking for a team. He was looking for consultants that are willing to join him and learn about this industry. And I happened to be, you know, in the same consulting division as he was. And let's just say most times wasn't very successful in the software industry. So I didn't, I didn't have that much to do. I was really just looking for projects. And that's how I ended up working with this industry and never looked back. But some of the best things in life happen by accident. Like my favorite management philosopher, Mike Tyson, says, every boxer has a plan until they've been hit. Yes. That's kind of how it goes. You get hit a lot, but that's not a bad thing. That's how you learn. So... So for advisors that are listening, that maybe are wondering where they are on this, I don't know, on this cusp or like on, on this divide, I mean, how how do people figure out whether they should be going in the ensemble direction or not? Or, or like, I realize it's it's to each their own, but are, are there particular in indicators of success or, or like things that you find that tend to work better, whether that's goals or success or mentality or whatever it is that, that leads people towards or away the ensemble path? Now, I would probably say that first, look around. Rule number one is look around because chances are you're not alone. If you're already working within a firm, if you're already surrounded by a team, you may not have so much of a choice. In fact, one of the greatest strategies in business can be that you're trying to swim against the current and create something that's just not compatible with your environment. If you're working in a firm and that firm has a lot of partners and professionals, you got to join that team or leave that firm. You no longer have a choice. It's a firm that has already committed to work as an ensemble. So you either have to find that passion to be part of a team or you have to leave that firm and start on your own, which may be very difficult to do. Even if you're working on your own and you're a solo practitioner, look around, you probably have some employees. And even if you have one employee that makes you an employer and that makes you a leader, and you still have to spend at least some of your time and energy thinking about what happens to that employee and what happens to the people you hire. So you may be less of a solo than you think. 
But generally speaking, the, the characteristics that would drive someone towards being a solo practitioner tend to be things such as, for example, you have very specific rules or very specific expectations about what you expect from your life or your career or your income. If you need to have certain flexibility in life, if you need to work certain number of hours, if you need to achieve certain sort of life goals, if you need to be driving a very specific amount of income or pattern of income, those are the kinds of requirements that may make it difficult for you to be in an ensemble. Those are requirements that, you know, generally speaking, you probably will need to meet on your own, if that makes sense. Okay. And so it's just that dynamic that if you're not really ready to to give it your all about trying to build a business that's larger than yourself, then this isn't going to work well because everybody ha- everybody on the ensemble has to be willing to give into that or or it, or it just doesn't work. Exactly. You know, you can accommodate the individual expectations or requirements of one or two or three people. Sort of imagine you and your friends go out to dinner and, you know, let's say one of them eats gluten-free. That's no problem. We can probably find something on the menu. And one of them is a vegetarian. We can probably find something on the menu there as well. And one of them doesn't drink red wine. And one of them stays away from sugar. We can still have a good time. Even though there's a lot of, you know, specific requirements, we can probably still have a good time. But grow that group of people and make it a 20, 30 person group. And now all of a sudden it becomes almost impossible to find a restaurant that can accommodate that, if that makes sense. And sometimes I get carried away by these parallels. So forget the dinners and everything else. What I'm trying to say is that at the end of the day, an ensemble is defined by putting the best interest of the firm first. So the question in a, in a true ensemble firm is not what do I want to do? What does Philip want to do? The question is what does the firm need? What does the business need? And the needs of the business supersede the wants of the Philip. Not just speaking of myself in third person perspective, but even using the definitive article. But I think a lot of advisors kind of get confused that somehow they can have their cake and eat it too, that they can build a big business, but by the way, they can achieve all of their personal goals. And I think that's where businesses get in trouble is if you build a business, it's almost like having a kid. You got to acknowledge that the needs of the business are more important than your personal needs. It's almost like having a child because Michael, you're a parent, you recognize that feeling. Whatever the needs of the children are, you just gotta, you, you gotta do it. Even if you don't feel like watching a little league baseball game on a rainy Tuesday afternoon at three o'clock and you have better things to do with your life, you just gotta sit there and watch that game. And it's a horrible game, but you just gotta do it. It's the same with the business. We had Angie Herbers on episode 18, kids.com slash 18, yeah. if anyone wants to go back and listen. You know, a- Angie had a, a fascinating kind of analogy or way of explaining this that, you know, your, your business is, is like a needy partner that you're in a relationship with, not just the other partners in your business, but like literally the business as an entity. It's like another person that you're in a relationship with. And the problem is it's a very one-sided, greedy relationship where the business only wants and needs and wants and needs and will take from you everything that you can give it and more. And, and so from the flip side, that means if you want to ever regain control of, of, yourself and your life and your schedule, at some point you have to create clear boundaries between you and the business about what the business does and what what you do. And, and, and otherwise, you can't extricate yourself from the business to actually live your own life or control your own time. You know, at the end of the day, we may all be using very dramatic terms. 
most of the business people I know live a pretty well-rounded life. Their parents, they have a variety of hobbies, they have a lot of personal time, they travel quite a bit. It's not that having a business sometimes is going to consume, some, somehow is going to consume you, but it will demand a lot of your time and a lot of ener your energy and a lot of your money and a lot of everything you have. And I tend to agree with Angie. It's like a very needy partner. But it's a partner you love. You love a lot. And that's why you're in this relationship because at the end of the day, that's that's where you want to be. That's where your passion is. And that's why being in an ensemble probably first and foremost is a function of that's where your passion is. You want to work with other people. You want to be surrounded with other people. You want to have partners and you want to share that success and you want to build that success together. And so how do you find those people? You know, sometimes they find you. Sometimes you try and fail. Sometimes you get lucky. You will find your partners in many different ways. I found my partners, as I said, uh, you know, Mark Abersion was one of my partners in Moss Adams, and I found him almost by accident. I joined the same group, but to do something different. But then sort of the gravity of charisma that Mark has and the gravity of opportunity that he creates, that's what drew me to that practice. I found my next partner in Rebecca Pomery, and Rebecca and I started in Moss Adams within a year of each other. So she was not just my partner, she was my friend. She was the person I'll go to for advice because she was somehow always more mature than I was. She would see things more clearly. I was a little bit more of the hook-headed one, still am probably. But, you know, she became my, we shared a cubicle and she became my partner and she, she became first my friend and then my partner. And then my next partner, Stuart Silverman, actually, Stuart was a client. I always joke with Stuart that, you know, first he was a client and then he was a friend and then we were friends and partners and then we were partners and now we're friends again. So it was kind of a progression over the years. He was a client and we'll frequently talk and then we became partners. We became friends first and discovered we have a lot in common. He kept calling me almost every holiday season saying, hey, you're not a corporate guy. Why are you in this big corporate firm? Until <laughs> 2007, I picked up the phone and said, you know what, Stuart, you're right. I'm not a corporate guy. Let's do this together. So that's how I found my next partner. And then, you know, today, Brendan, you know Brendan Odell very well. Michael, you've worked with Brendan too. Brendan was part of the Moss Adams team. And I worked with him in Moss Adams. And then when I started Ensemble, we kept in touch and he joined me here. And now I have, you know, another partner. You know, just to finish that story of partnerships in my life, I also happen to own a boxing gym in Seattle. It's called Arcaro Boxing. I own it together with a partner. Trisha Turton is my partner in Arcaro Boxing, and she's an amazing boxer and an amazing coach. And once again, I found Trisha by walking into a boxing gym, and she was the coach there, and I just really enjoyed working with her as a coach. And next thing you know, she said, do you want to go and grab a beer? I said, I'm always game for a beer. We went and had some beers, and then she said, do you want to start a boxing gym? And there we go. So some partners find you, some you're going to find some maybe a trial and error. You know, unfortunately, one of the worst things in business is sometimes you find the wrong partners, at least initially. So so you seem to have a pretty good string of finding the right ones. Like, how do you, how do you figure out it's the right person with the right fit, that they have all the, the, the right mentality that you've been talking about? Like, have you just been on a a good old lucky streak that they seem to just keep working out? Or are there things that you look for to try to figure out, is this person going to be a good business partner for me? 
No, you know, it's somewhat the problem of the inverse selection. You, you know, you look at people and you see the ones that survived. You know, those are the partnerships that worked out. I purposefully skipped through the ones that didn't. But also, even in the best of partnerships, they're going to be tough times. I can tell you that Mark and I have argued and have argued in a heated manner. I remember one time Rebecca left my office and slammed the door so hard the picture fell from the wall and the glass <laughs> crashed and <laughs> broke. She didn't intend to, to, to smash it so hard, but that's what happened. You know, I remember Stuart and I pretty much, you know, not talking for days and not exactly being in good terms. I remember Trisha and I fighting over things that had to do with the boxing gym. Chances are, you know, Brendan and I have not been on the same page about something, actually many things, maybe even today. So in any partnership, you most importantly, you got to remember what are you trying to achieve together? What are you trying to build together? And you got to continue trusting and respecting each other. Partnerships are built on trust and respect. And for as long as you trust and respect your partner, you may not necessarily agree with them. You can even be angry with them. But trust and respect will bring you back together. If you lose that trust, if you lose that respect, if you're not sure your partner's making good decisions, if you don't respect their decision-making or their skill set anymore, if you don't trust them to do the right thing, that's where partnerships fall apart. And when they fall apart, it's it's horrible and it's heartbreaking. But I would probably say that partnerships are a little bit of a leap of faith. You can't really analyze someone. You can't really somehow, you know, open a spreadsheet and list all of their characteristics and then enter a few formulas and the answer will come up whether you should be partners or not. But before you become partners, try to know the other person as much as you can and try to see all of them, their business decision-making and their value system and their approach to people and their approach to clients and staff and employees. Try to understand what motivates them. Try to understand what their measure of success is. Try to understand what their vision about themselves and their lives. So ask a lot of questions, get to know them really well. But at the end of the day, it's still a leap of faith. You just got to believe that it's going to work. It's going to work well and that you trust and respect this person enough to take on this journey together. I think you make a good point that good partnerships are still going to have fights and, and disagreements from time to time. I suppose in a lot of ways, it's it's it very much parallels marriage as well, that you will inevitably have fights with your spouse as long as there's still a basis of trust and respect. You know, you sleep on it and get over things or whatever your process is for getting over the the fights that come up and then and then you move on and keep building your life together. And 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 there's very much a parallel to that with business partners as well. That I mean to me there's almost a the fact that you fight occasionally means A, you still are both passionate about the business and B, you come at it from different perspectives, which I find is frankly how a lot of good decisions ultimately get made. It's just when you take people with different perspectives who have a strong belief about something like a business and you put them in a room together, they're going to have disagreements and sometimes they might be loud. Yeah, I read somewhere there was some research that indicated with couples that couples that fight early on in their relationship tend to have a longer and better relationship. Fights are actually very positive in some ways. You know, I'm a boxer. I believe in conflict. I think a lot of good things come out of conflict. I actually believe a lot of businesses make the mistake of avoiding conflict. You know, conflict is beneficial, in a, particularly in a partnership, is a beneficial because it says that you and I have a strong enough relationship to where we can fight but not hurt each other. 
that I trust you enough to where we're going to passionately disagree and we're going to have a heated argument, but we also trust each other enough to that not breaking the relationship. Basically, that kind of disagreement and that sort of a fight says that we trust each other enough to both eventually, ultimately act in the best interest of the business. And while we're trying to figure out what's best for the business, we also trust each other not to kill each other. We trust each other not to hurt each other and damage each other and damage that relationship. And there's something very positive in the fact that, you know, we're going to fight and then we're going to come back together and grab a beer or whatever our ritual is. And then we're going to feel that the relationship is stronger that way, that I don't have to always suppress any disagreement that I have, that I always don't have to always shy away from conflict, that we can experience conflict and we'll be just fine. Because a lot of, a lot of truth comes out of conflict depending on what you believe in, but the Big Bang is an explosion. You know, potentially that's how the universe was created. I'm trying to be very careful about everyone's beliefs, but if you believe in the Big Bang theory, the Big Bang was the biggest of conflicts, if you will. It was the explosion that created everything. You know, many things come out of revolutions. Conflict has a way of bringing clarity. Yeah, I really like just that that framing that, well, I like conflict has a way of bringing clarity, but but that idea that our our business relationship is good enough that we can fight and not hurt each other, right? I mean, I know at least for me that that dynamic has always been. You know, I'm a I'm a very strong-willed person. That's you know part of why I end out in entrepreneurial endeavors, but but virtually always with partners. And and for me, it's always been that you know we may have disagreements, we may fight, it may even get loud from time to time because we're both passionate about what we're working on, but. I feel like this is so can to say, but like, it's not personal, it's business. Like the, the disagreements and the fighting isn't personal attacks and things to each other. It's just, we have some potentially very different views around the business and what's good for the business. And that's still a conflict to be worked out, but, but we maintain the relationship because we're not attacking each other. We're just having a strong and occasionally loud disagreement about what the best course of action is here for a business that we both care about, but just have different views on. Yeah, exactly. Although I was going to say it's not personal, it's business. Isn't that what Don Corleone used to say? Yeah, yeah. I, like I realized that there's some bad connotations to that as well. Uh, <laughs> so. You know, you, you could say that the mafia was an ensemble as well. Yeah, well, apparently one that executed very well, no pun intended. You know, forget forget that for a moment. It's really fascinating. I came across a book. I don't remember the title, but it was a history of piracy. It was describing sort of the organizational structure of a pirate ship. It was really funny to actually it's a, read right? it. Like it's a, it's a business with a leader that must run as a well-functioning team or things don't go very well. Exactly. Well, it turns out pirates actually had a very specific way of organizing their ships. You know, first of all, captains were somewhat democratically elected. There was definitely a board of directors meeting to elect a captain. You could sort of vote the captain down. Everybody had a pretty well-defined share of the loot. So, you know, literally they were like unit partners. And, you know, depending on your position on the ship, you may have one unit or two units or three units. Also, depending on whether you get hurt or not during our missions. If you get hurt, then you get you awarded more in a bigger share. Yeah. If you have a more dangerous job, then you generally speaking get more. But it was kind of really interesting. I, I guess the idea of ensembles is not some kind of a new idea that sprung in the late 20th century. It's something that has always existed. If you look at pirate ships, look at how the Italian Renaissance shops function, the kind of shops that produce the work of Leonardo and Michelangelo and so on, how they were training their apprentices to become accomplished artists and so on. 
all the medieval guilds and so on, they definitely functioned in similar ways. They were partnerships of people coming together for a common purpose. Interesting. So what's your... I, like, I'm, I'm curious now just to hear more of your path of how you've come to all this experience and realization work with advisors. So you said you, you, you started with Moss Adams back in 99, 2000 in the... You know, the Moss Adams Consulting Division that Mark Tiburgian was was building out and growing. And so, what was the business like back then? I mean, what did you come in to do and, and what was Moss Adams Consulting doing at the time? You know, that almost is sort of the fuzzy distant past. I graduated from the MBA program in Oregon, University of Oregon, and I was looking for a job. I mean, it's as simple as that. And any job, actually, at the time, was just any job whatsoever. And then my wife found a job that she really liked in Seattle. So I drove to Seattle looking for an apartment. And I happened to be playing soccer with a guy in Eugene, Oregon. He was a Russian guy who happened to be on the Russian Olympic rowing team for the Olympics, which is a completely irrelevant fact, by the way. But he said, hey, you should give Moss Adams a call because he was a CPA and he was working for Moss Adams in Eugene. So I gave Moss Adams a call completely out of the blue. And somebody was just a really kind lady who was the receptionist at the time, picked up the phone and connected me with Kathy Gibson, who was one of the partners there. And it just so happened I was carrying in my briefcase a business plan for a software company, and Kathy was working on something very similar at the time. So she kind of took notice of that. And I interviewed for Moss Adams and somehow convinced them to hire me. And I, you know, joined the consulting division and then found Mark and kind of so on and so forth. But that seems like the distant past. How long did you stay in the organization then? About nine years or so. So I joined in 98 and I left officially in 2008. So about nine, 10 years. And you, know, you, I guess you went the path from being an entry level, you know, like an entry level analyst up to becoming a partner with Mark and Rebecca by the end of that journey. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when I joined, Mark was obviously the leader of that division. I was an entry-level employee. Rebecca and I were working in a cubicle, and we were sort of at the very beginning of the career path. So it was really interesting, Mike. As I mentioned to you, I just wrote a book called G2, Building the Next Generation, focused on the non-founders, the, non the generation that came behind the founders. The, the, the generation I very much believe is taking over the industry today. But as I was writing that book and trying to describe career paths, I was very much writing from personal experience. I mean, I started there in that cubicle with the spreadsheet, and then nine years later became partner in Moss Adams. And then as soon as I became partner, I left. <laughs> and that was kind of the next chapter. And that, you know, that happened almost 10 years ago. So Moss Adams for me is to some degree distant history. I always felt like consulting is an interesting business. You keep talking about what other people are doing. It's almost like being a sports commentator. You're talking about what's happening on the field, but usually sports commentators are retired players. They're, you know, someone who played the game and now is talking about the game because their body can't handle it anymore. And I realized at the time, at the time, I literally was 34 years old. I was telling myself, I'm just too young to be talking about what other people are doing or should be doing. I want to do something. And that was really most of all the motivation that drove me to pick up the phone and talk to Stuart, Stuart Silverman, my partner in Fusion, and say, you know what, I am not a corporate guy, let's build this together. And he had started Fusion in 2003, so by 2007, when we had this conversation, Fusion was kind of a fairly established business. It was already successful, we had momentum, we had a lot of support and some very good strategic partnerships. 
So when I joined him, it wasn't a startup business, but it was still relatively young and new. We had seven employees. It was a relatively small team. So for for those who aren't familiar, can you describe just what was Fusion Advisor Network? Like, what was this thing? It's a group of highly motivated, successful advisors who are most of all coming together to build better business and experience the camaraderie of doing it together. You know, in some ways, it reminds me of the XY network that you are building. It's really the concept of practitioners who are trying to build a better business, joining forces to create some resources that they can utilize together, but most of all, who can learn from each other and sort of experience that camaraderie of working together. Because being a business owner is, can be a very lonely experience. I'll talk to you more about that perhaps in a moment, but it can be very lonely. So Fusion was meant to bring the resources together, but also dispel some of that loneliness, that you're not alone in business, that you always have a friend, you always have other advisors that you can call for advice, that you can just associate with. Because as Bulgarians will tell you, it's not a good idea to drink alone. You shouldn't be drinking alone. you got to find company. But Fusion, Fusion still is about all of those things. But Stuart and I were together for about five years or so. I was the president of the firm. So I literally, speaking of partnerships, I went from having 240 partners in Moss Adams to having just one. Well, that must have made, made decision-making a little bit simpler, right? Yeah, you know, very much so, very much so. I remember the partner meetings in Moss Adams were these kind of very formal affairs in the Fairmont Olympic here in Seattle in the big ballroom and you know, everybody well-dressed and with a formal agenda and presentations and things like that. Stuart and I had our annual planning meeting. We usually went to Vail, Colorado, skied for a day and then drank beer and ate French fries and chicken wings. So it was it was a lot of fun building a business together. And it was kind of much more that experience of starting, not from scratch, but starting from the beginning and, and building the business and sort of confronting all of these decisions that have to be made. And that's really is the burden of being a business owner is there are a lot of decisions to make and you are responsible for all the outcomes and all the results. And it can be a crushing burden, but it also is one of the best experiences in life to create something out of nothing to, you know, bring a group of people together to excite them about the opportunity and what you can achieve together. And, and Fusion was fantastic that way and continues to be to this day. You know, the organization didn't stop existing. Just in 2012, Fusion was merged into what today is Kestra Financial. And it merged with that organization, and Stuart continues to be closely involved in Fusion. And then I, you know, remember, I remember about consulting, because the good thing about consulting, the bad thing is you're always talking about things, but you never get to do them yourself. The good thing about consulting is the amazing variety of situations and people you encounter. And I always miss that a little bit. So that's how the Ensemble practice started, literally on the next day after the merger. And then Fusion became the first client, and to this day it continues to be one of the clients I work with. But since 2012, it's been the Ensemble practice, and that team has grown. We have five people now, and of course, Brandon Odell is my partner now. So I went from 240 partners to one partner to no partners, and I guess I'm building up again. I don't know if I'll get to 240. I actually don't, don't want to get to 240, but certainly building the number up again. So can you talk to us a little bit about what ensemble practice is? So you, you, you coined this term, ultimately now you've named a business after it, which would make a lot of sense. So can you talk about what ensemble practice is? Like what, what do you do and, and who do you do it for? I mean, consulting is really the process of helping business owners make business decisions. To me, running a business, managing a business is all about making good decisions. 
And consultants can be very instrumental in making good decisions, particularly in situations that are relatively new to a business. In other words, as an organization, you have not encountered this before. It's the first time you're adding a partner. It's the first time you're doing a merger. It's the first time you're creating a partnership compensation structure. It's the first time you have to retire a partner. It's the first time you're negotiating the sale of your business. So those are the first time situations or times when a consultant can maybe bring experience and perspective. Consultants can also help in situations that are perhaps very political. You know, as businesses grow, they have some of the larger RIAs in our industry have as many as 50 partners. That's many points of view and many agendas and many ideas and many strategies and many even client bases and locations. They need to be reconciled. And sometimes internally, that's difficult to do. Perhaps people coming from the outside have a little more objective point of view, but also perhaps a better credibility in trying to bring those parties together. And that's part of what consultants do. And of course, consultants can also bring some knowledge. You know, business owners see one business and they see that same business over and over and over again every day. A good consultant can bring the experience of all these other businesses that they work with. So you don't have to to repeat every step that they've ever taken. You can learn from them and you can learn what's the outcome of these different strategies without having to experience it. And and are there particular are there particular first time situations that you're finding are the the most common ones that that advisors are struggling with today that are that they're coming to you for? I mean is it like what's what's popular? Is it introducing new partners? Is it retiring partners? Is it you know, staff compensation structuring what what kinds of things are you finding are are the the buzz in the advisory industry right now you know forgive me if i stay away from the word buzz because i i think it's not just some kind of a temporary occurrence this is something that's of critical importance to every single firm in the industry every firm that wants to continue to grow and be successful needs to find a way to develop its next generation of advisors. And of course, those advisors, some of them need to be the next generation of leaders. I say that very purposefully, every firm. Obviously, solo practices may find a different path to succession and may go to a different lifespan. But any firm that wants to continue to exist as a firm needs to find a reliable, systematic process of creating the advisors of the future. And then, of course, finding the future managers and the future leaders, those that are going to be the next CEOs and CIOs. And it's not just the succession process. Very often we talk about succession in the industry. This is not a process of succession. This is a process of growth. It's a process of evolution. That as firms continue to add clients and continue to have staff members and continue to grow in the number of people and the locations and the revenues and the assets and the clients, we just need people. And you can't grow a good advisory firm without adding people. And those people need to be put in positions of prominence and leadership. They need to become leaders of their teams. They need to become the voices of their firms. And they need, we need to find out who are the best, best ones that are going to lead the firm into the future. And these days, that's consuming most of our time and a lot of our resources. The G2 Institute, which is a training program for next generation leaders. The G2, the book, which is coming out any moment now, literally within an hour or two. But also a lot of our consulting engagements ultimately come down to how does the next generation of advisors become more prominent and then eventually take control of those firms. And so what are you what are you finding emerges some of the the best practices? You know, if I am an advisor that's got one or a few young people and I'm trying to figure out how do I 
How do I bring them up in the business? How do I ultimately get them to partners or make sure they're ready to be partners or make sure I don't add them and find out they're bad partners? Like where, where, what are the best practices that are emerging around this now? You know, I would probably say that number one in a very obvious step, but very often ignored is if you need to have talented young people, then you need to go out and hire talented young people. If you want to have young people on board, you need to be recruiting. I say it's obvious, but many businesses actually wish they had younger advisors, wish they had younger people in general, but they haven't hired anybody in five years. And I, I remember even back in the Moss Adams days, we one, at one point in time, we came to the realization that for the last seven years, we've been looking to hire someone with five years of experience. Ironically, had we hired that person, <laughs> we'd have had for a long time. I love that. Have you been trying to hire someone with five years of experience for the past seven years? Yeah, and that happens a lot in the advisory industry as well, because that's what everybody wants. Every advisory firm is looking to recruit that CFP experienced advisor that can be put in front of clients almost right away and where she or he are very capable of retaining client relationships or even growing client relationships almost right away. But that, that's, that's a person with perhaps seven, eight, nine, ten years of experience and they need to accumulate that experience somewhere. So I would probably say step number one and a very obvious one is hire young people and then step number two is develop them. How do I do that? Because most advisory firms are still relatively small, I mean, even, even sizable advisory firms in our industry are, are like, we're one-tenth the size of being a small business by the Small Business Administration standards. We're like a micro business. So when it's me and a couple of staff members or me and one staff member or, you know, maybe I've got one partner and there are five or six of us, like, I don't have a lot of spare time to train and develop young people to come in, especially with the concern that I'm going to do it for a couple of years and then they're just going to leave. So like, I mean, how do I do this to figure out how to actually find the time to train them and have some confidence that if I do, they're not just going to leave at the end of the, the training period? You know, I, re I really hear you. I'm, I'm, I'm smiling because I remember when, so when I started the ensemble practice, it was really just me and one other employee. So it was Jonathan and I, and then we wanted to recruit an office manager slash project manager. But then Jonathan, for some reason, wasn't in the office. I think he was on vacation just when I was interviewing project managers. And that would have been employee number two. And I realized when those people come from an in for an interview, they're going to find me all by myself alone in an office. It's just no way a quality person is ever going to join that firm that's really just a guy in an office. So I literally called the temp agency and hired a couple of temps just to mingle in the office, just to create an atmosphere of being a real firm. You hired, <laughs> you hired temps so it would look like there's more of an office. I am not joking. Literally, we had two temps in the office to just, you know, open the door and welcome the candidates and just so it looks like a real firm and it's not just a guy or, in an office. Were you kind of worried that if, if it worked out and you hired one of them, at some point they look around and say, like, where are all the people that were here when I interviewed? <laughs> I don't think I was thinking that far ahead. I was just thinking, let me find a good person, then I'll, I'll do some explaining later. Plus, Jonathan will be back, so I think, you know, there will be more people than just me. But anyways, it, it is difficult to recruit when you're a small, smaller firm. I mean, obviously, most times when they needed to hire an MBA, they just went to the local MBA schools and said, okay, who are your best? When you're a two, three-person firm like Ensemble is, you just got to be more entrepreneurial. You got to be more creative. But 
Look, people are there to be hired. This entire generation of millennials is dying for an opportunity. Actually, one of their biggest complaints is that they're not getting an opportunity to join the workforce and show what they can do. There are a lot of young people out there. I think, Michael, you or you of all people are in contact with many of them because your XY network is so young. Well, and, and we hire a lot of them with our new planner recruiting business as well. Yeah, and Josh's new planner recruiting is definitely one of the ways to go. Many of our clients use that. Just simply advertise, network, talk to other people, look around, go to the CFP board, go to the FPA job sites, go to your strategic partners, custodians and broker dealers, let the world know what you're looking for, and it's out there. I mean, it's shocking how many highly qualified, eager people there are. One of the best recruiters in this business that I, I've known is Dale Yankee, one of the founders of Dowling and Yankee in San Diego. And if you look at Dale's team, I mean, the quality of people there is amazing. They are all Wharton and Harvard MBAs. They're engineers and CFPs and CFAs. Everybody went to a really good school. Everybody really talented. And the reason for that is Dale is a nonstop recruiter. I mean, he approaches, he himself told me that he approaches recruiting people with the same amount of energy and passion as he approaches business development. He's constantly networking. He's constantly looking around to say who's talented, who's good, and who can join him. I even remember, actually, Bob Bunting, the former CEO of Moss Adams, told me during one of the conferences that the last thing he did as a CEO of Moss Adams was he made 100 phone calls to people he wanted to recruit to Moss Adams. So literally, he made 100 phone calls to professionals across the country that he believed should be part of the Moss Adams team. And in many ways, I think it shocks me how often when there is a hire to make, advisors, particularly the CEOs, the owners, are frequently saying, I don't have the time for that. I'm just going to delegate it to an office manager or a project manager. And it's this complete disconnect of you really need that person. And that person is very important in the future of your firm. But by the way, you don't have even the time to screen them and to talk to them and learn a little bit about them and hire them. Or for some, I feel like it's, it's hard enough to find the time to to find them and vet them and hire them, or you know you can you can outsource that to recruiters. But like heaven forbid, you actually offer a job to one and they say yes, but now you have to train them when most of us have no training experience. Well, and that's kind of the realization that first of all, hiring, training, and developing people is one of the most important activities that particularly a business owner can undertake. Somehow, especially in this industry, many, many professionals have been trained that if you're not servicing clients or developing new business, you're wasting your time. That those are the two most valuable and the only activities that should be occupying your schedule. And that, God forbid, you're training people or hiring people or managing people, then you're wasting your time and that's something you should delegate. And nothing can be further from the truth. I think if you... See yourself as a business owner. You got to realize that your team is perhaps your most important client. As Mark Tiburgeon would say, your best people are more important than your best clients. And the time you spend to develop and manage that team, the time you spend to make sure that they're ready to be prominent professionals and prominent leaders in that business, it's a time well spent. And it's perhaps one of the best activities that you can dedicate yourself to as a business owner. That doesn't mean that every single advisor in every single firm has to become a coach. But that said, in every firm, there have to be at least a few good coaches. And no one's in a better position to coach advisors than an advisor. 
it's this utter fallacy that somehow we're going to hire professional managers and the professional managers are somehow going to create this next generation of advisors. That won't happen. The people who, who are in the best position to train advisors are the advisors themselves because the best training happens in a client meeting. It happens in a staff meeting. It happens in the office. It doesn't happen somewhere in the classroom. Classrooms are important. They play a role, but you, you can't just leave the classrooms to train your future advisors. Right? And, and so if this actually works out with them, how do I make sure they stay? Well, you know, no one ever leaves a successful good firm. If the firm is successful, if the atmosphere is collegiate and collaborative, if the culture is strong, if the environment is exciting, people tend to stay. If the firm is struggling, if the culture is dysfunctional, if people are fighting each other all the time, people tend to leave. So the easy answer is make sure that you create opportunity, most of all, and make sure you have the right atmosphere and culture in your firm and you'll have no trouble retaining people. And I, I find in practice, like one of the things I've just observed over the years of lots of advisors that have left firms, particularly when it's really active with next gen in, in the early days, and there were a lot of advisors there that were leaving firms, is just the, the simple dynamic of growth and how much growth matters. Like is, is the firm growing? Because you know, just a 15% annual growth rate compounding basically doubles a firm every five years. And so you know, a, a firm that has 10 or 15% growth rates that's going to double every five years, there's a lot of opportunities that that come, right? If you just, you know, if you look around the org chart and say, I don't know where I'm going to move up, well, the answer is, well, there's going to be twice as many jobs here five years from now. So I'm not quite sure where you're going to move up, but there's going to be a lot of opportunities. And and 10 years from now, it'll be quadruple the size for you know, compounding, doubling twice. That, you know, just the, the nature of growth I find very few advisors that leave growing firms. I mean, if they do, it's a personal need. It's starting family and want to go back home or just, I just want to serve a different type of clientele. Nothing wrong with the firm, but I just, I just don't want to serve the people that the firm serves. Like there's always some personal overlay to it. But as you say, like people rarely leave in that environment because the growth creates the opportunities. It's, it's the firms that, you know, they tend to be individual solo practices where someone is a firm owner has gotten to a good, healthy income and they're making good money and they're very happy with it. And they're not growing very much because there's not much reason to, because you're making good money and you don't, don't need to grow it more. And, and like that, and that's wonderful and fine as a lifestyle practice, but I find these are the firms that tend to churn through the employees. Because eventually the new person that comes in, like it may take them two or three years, but they, they kind of get it. Like there's no upside. There's no, there's no new opportunities. There's nowhere to move up if the firm isn't growing. It's almost impossible to get equity in a firm that's not growing because the firm owner giving up equity in a firm that's not growing is literally like every share I give to you or sell to you is just profit I don't get. Like my pie just gets smaller. When you're in a growing firm, you know, I can I can keep giving or selling shares to next generation owners coming in, and if the firm is growing, the stuff I've got left still ends up being drastically, you know, like a, a small a small piece of a large pie ends up being worth way more than a large piece or a hundred percent of a small pie. So the 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 growth increases the value of what you've got left faster than 
the the dilution happens as you sell or transfer shares to next generation. And and so you know, there's a lot of advisors I still talk to from time to time that ask this like, why growth? We all talk about growth. What if I don't want to grow? And and you know, I've always been in the camp that it's fine if you don't want to grow. If you want to run a lifestyle practice that's built around you, that's your prerogative. But recognize that that means it's going to be brutally difficult to attract and retain good employees because they're going to figure out there's not much upside. And and if you manage to hold on to people, you know, I'd say like you, you're going to tend to hold on to a certain type of employee profile that may be a good worker, but it's probably not going to be someone that takes a lot of initiative and has a lot of ambition because if they did, they're going to realize in two or three years or less that there's no upside where they are and they're going to leave. And and that just the simple factor of growth and whether the firm is growing is it seems to be remarkably predictive of whether or how much turnover is happening in the firm. Mm-hmm. I, I absolutely agree with every single word you said. And you know, the, the, the key term there is opportunity. For as long as there's opportunity in a firm, opportunity is the magnet for talent and opportunity is what keeps talent around. When opportunity dries up, when year after year I'm likely to do the same thing over and over again at about the same levels of income and recognition and achievement, that's where people start leaving and start looking towards the door. And growth, growth creates opportunity. It's very difficult to create opportunity without growing. That's not to say that you know every firm needs to rush out and try to pile up as many clients as they can and as many assets as they can. But there's got to be a consistent flow of opportunity and that will attract talent and that will retain talent and that will develop talent. Because speaking of what you need to do in order to develop talent, the talented people need that opportunity. They need clients to be in front of. They need staff to manage. They need teams to lead. And without those opportunities to establish themselves and experience those leadership positions, they, they're not going to develop. Okay, but from the flip side, as, as an advisory firm owner, like it's a little scary to, to take, to put an inexperienced advisor in front of my valuable clients, to put an inexperienced manager in charge of employees of the firm. Like, How do I deal with the fact that I hear you from the end of, in order to develop them, you've got to give them experience, but from the business end, like they make very costly mistakes when they get into these positions of responsibility and they don't necessarily know what they're doing yet. Well, you know, I think the first first step is you got to trust and respect your own colleagues. If these are people you hire, these are people you train, people who hold degrees and designations, they're probably not that inexperienced. They're probably not that bunch of foolish young professionals. Generally speaking, when we describe G2, G2 are not 22 years old that just graduated from college and are trying to figure out what to wear to a client meeting. The G2, the second generation in this industry today are people in their 30s and 40s. They have 10, sometimes 15, sometimes more years of experience. They are very well credentialed. They're very well trained. They have done this quite a bit. So I would probably argue that, you know, the next generation is not inexperienced. They just need an opportunity. But also, I mean, I, you know, Michael, my son is almost 20 years old these days, but I distinctly remember when he turned 16, he got his permit and he was learning to drive. I mean, it's kind of the same process, you know, how do you let your son or daughter for that matter, because my daughter is coming up to that age now, how do you let them learn 
to drive a car. And the only possible answer is you give them the keys to the car and you put them behind the wheel. There's no other way to learn how to drive. Believe me, I've tried. You know, you can sit with them in the car, you can talk to them while you drive, but at the end of the day, if they're going to learn to drive, you got to give them the wheel and the keys. And yes, they can make costly mistakes. Let me just say that my son parking in strange ways has cost more than a couple of claims to the insurance. But, he, but you know, they got to make those mistakes because if they don't, they're never going to learn to drive. And if they don't learn how to drive, they're going to have a very hard time in life. And it's the same for your firm. It's kind of a realization that if you never let your younger professionals make some of those mistakes, you're never going to have much of a firm. And if you don't have that much of a firm, that's not good for the clients either. And that's not good for your professionals. And frankly, I think, first of all, you'd be surprised at how knowledgeable and how good some of those professionals are. Very often, I, even in my own experience, I sometimes find that my, my colleagues are sometimes way better than I am at some of the things that we try to do. So they may actually not just be better drivers, they may not just be adequate drivers, they may be better drivers than you are. But second of all, I think you will find also that clients will tolerate some of the mistakes if they believe that the firm is really trying to do its best. And of course, if those mistakes are, you know, caught and corrected. These things are not fatal. I mean, all of us learn somewhere. And all of us got that opportunity to be in front of a client for the first time. And that's what G2 needs. And I believe sometimes professionals are way, way, way too overbearing and overprotective. And I don't think it's good for the clients to begin with, but it's certainly not good for the team. It's not good for the development of G2. So I guess if, if I have to, at worst, just mentally earmark, you know, some, safe, some mistakes are going to happen at worst. Maybe a client or two might turn over call it a cost of doing business to develop staff and just accept some costs and move on? You know, you know, somewhat of a cynical statement, I would probably say yes. That, you know, at the end of the day, as the French say, you can make an omelet without breaking some eggs. Consider the possibility. What is more important, retaining a couple of clients or creating a future partner that's going to work with 100, 150 clients? Right. I mean, if you just start doing the math of how many... How many clients can a successful advisor partner manage as, you know, clients and revenue of the business in the future? And like, if I can find a person that does that well and develop them well to do that, it's worth it, even if they make some mistakes along the way and it costs a client or two along the way. The math is overwhelming. You're much better off developing another capable advisor, another capable professional, another capable partner that's going to continue managing client relationships and developing new relationships even if that costs you two, three, four, five, six, seven client relationships. The reason I said it's somewhat cynical is, you know, almost imagine advisors were doctors. Obviously, you don't want to make mistakes with patients. You don't want to harm someone. You don't want to hurt someone. You don't want to make mistakes that really cost the client something irreparable. As a firm, you have to create quality control processes that allow you to catch those mistakes if they're ever made to mitigate and correct them. So what would a quality control process look like? Well, you, you know, it always amazed me. Like in most times, in, in a CPA firm, for example, no report ever goes out to a client unless it's been reviewed by another professional. And there's a very formal review process that, for example, if you're sending a report out, I, as your partner or another professional in our firm, has to read that report, has to go through a checklist of, you know, verifying that all of these components are in place. Very easily, the same can be said about a financial plan. You know, that's why firms have compliance departments. Compliance departments should be reviewing all of the investment and financial planning decisions in some way. 
That's why firms have investment committee. Obviously, all the trades and all the things that are done, there should be someone taking a second look at that. And, you know, that's another reason why, generally speaking, there should be no meetings where only one professional is sitting with the client. There should be other people in that meeting. Those could be associates, those could be partners, those could be other advisors. But the more there are other sets of eyes, the more there are other people present in that relationship, the more someone's going to notice that, you know, what we're doing here is not a standard recommendation. It's not our policy. It's not what we usually do, or this number doesn't look right. Those are the kinds of processes and systems that can be created, and they will help the development of professionals. But, you know, in all of my practical experience, about 18 years or so, I can't really recall ever having a client who said, oh, my God, we, you know, tried developing John or Sally or Amanda, and, you know, Amanda really messed this up, and she cost us thousands of dollars of liability and mistakes, and we lost, you know, dozens of clients. All of the quote-unquote horror stories that I hear are things that are relatively minor. Somebody, you know, didn't quite please the client. Somebody perhaps didn't quite say the right thing. Maybe we lost one client or two, but maybe they were disgruntled clients anyways. Right. And, you know, the the truth is they were probably going to fire you anyways. They just used Amanda's mistake as an excuse for it. It's kind of thing. Yeah, the danger of having a firm, and I say that being a business owner myself, the, the danger of the ensemble practice being a three, four, five person team 10 years from now is much greater than the danger of us losing a client or two. Of course, I don't want to lose clients. And particularly, most of all, I never want to be associated with not doing a good job for a client. Of course, we want to do our best. But at the end of the day, if we don't develop the next generation of consultants in our case, we're not going to have much of a firm. Because, you know, 10 years, both you and I are not getting any younger. 10 years from now, I will definitely not be one of the younger people in the room. And at that point in time, I'm hoping to have a lot of partners and a lot of professionals. And the only way to do it is to give them an opportunity to be in front of a client. And, you know, the funny thing is when you do, when I realized that and gave my son the keys and he started driving around on his own and yes, he scratched the car a couple of times, but you know what? Today, I think he's a much better driver than I was, but still I am. And I think that's kind of the best thing about developing people is that not only are you replenishing the things that you can do, but very often you as a firm develop capabilities that you just didn't have before. People bring knowledge, experience, expertise, talent that you just didn't have before. And so if I, if I do find a, a good person, they've been developed and we want to actually elevate them to become partner, how do you typically see these kinds of partnership arrangements being structured now? Like, do you, do you give equity? Do you require a buy-in? Do you require a buy-in, but the firm finances it? Do you make them go to the bank and get a loan? Like, how are, how are G2s actually becoming partners these days? Yeah, when there's a will, there's a way. I think that's kind of a short statement. But I would probably say in the simplest possible fashion, first of all, partners should be partners. I'm not a fan of synthetic equity or sort of non-standard arrangements where we have partners, but they're not quite partners. Profit interest participants, phantom stock owners, non-voting partners, income partners, and so on. All of these arrangements, I frequently compare them with the economy plus in an airplane. You know, you're still in economy. Get an extra drink in a little more room, but you're still in economy. You're not in first class. So if you're going to have partners, have partners, meaning share equity and share your future with them. And then you got to remember that the reason you're bringing them to the partnership group is because you believe they're instrumental for the future of the firm. So act accordingly. Never give up equity. 
very much believe that. Don't just give it away because when you give it away, people don't value it. But that said, you know, price it in a way that it's practical, where the new partners can actually buy into their share of the business, perhaps help them get financing. Especially today, there's a lot of financing options. There's a lot of lenders that even specialize in lending in such situations. Life Oak Bank is a very easy example to give here. Help them get some financing. Use a fair valuation method, whatever fair is. That's a long discussion. You wouldn't necessarily advocate a like a, a discounted value because maybe they helped to grow it to get it there kind of thing. You would still say it's it you know, get a get a fair value at at the time of the deal, but it should be an actual market value. Get a fair value. And I don't want to get tangled up in the technicalities of what's fair market value and what's market value and what discounts apply or don't apply, but just be fair. I, I think that's the standard is just be fair. Don't discount. But the discount is such a relative thing. You know, Michael, I've noticed, for example, my book, for example, The Ensemble Practice, the list price is $75. So you could look at a price of $50 as a fairly steep discount, a 33% discount off of the, off of the cover price. The reality, though, is that no one ever pays the cover price. I don't think anybody has ever bought my book at $75. The reason is the book is available on Amazon, and on Amazon it's always $49.95. And honestly, between you and me, I suspect that publishers these days are setting the price at $75 just so after the Amazon discount itself. It, it looks like a big deal. $49.95, yeah. yeah. And, and literally the same is true for equity. It's like when advisors say, well, I'm discounting it. Well, discounting it relative to what? And, you know, at the end of the day, for any equity deal to be viable, it has to be a willing buyer and a willing seller. So it has to be a fair value entices the buyers, but also the sellers. You know, you don't want to punish those that are selling. Well, and understood, I have to admit, I, mean, I, I see a – well, I've seen these from both ends because we've, we've introduced partners at, at Pinnacle as, as well as buying in. But, you know, I – I mean, I hear you that it takes a willing buyer and a willing seller, but in practice, I find it is rarely a balanced negotiating conversation between an owner who may literally own all the equity and an employee who doesn't, right? Like I, not only do I have to negotiate this deal for myself, but I have very little control over the terms. And if I say no, I risk not only not becoming a partner, but I may or may not still have a job here at the end as well. So like my my stakes from the buyer's end often feel very elevated and less flexible. And and that just seems to lead to a lot of negotiation breakdowns. So I'm 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 still curious as to what happens commonly in terms of how you buy this and how you structure the deals, right? You know, to, I, I'm, I'm all for being fair, but I've seen a lot of disputes that started with a buyer who didn't believe the price was fair and a seller who did believe the price was fair. And that was pretty much the dispute <laughs> was they couldn't come to an agreement on, on, on what constitutes fair. So, yeah, I, I, you know, and I see those horror stories all the time. They happen and they unfortunately happen more often than they should. I think both sides of that discussion have to sort of maintain a very clear view of the fact that they are trying to become partners. This is not an isolated transaction. This is not a transaction that exists in and of itself. It's a transaction that opens the door to a long-term partnership. And I think the sellers, in this case, the founders usually have to be realistic that if you misprice the equity, if you set the value too high, 
you know, sooner or later, you're going to have some kind of a mutiny on board where your present and future partners are going to say, you're, you're asking us to, to buy this at a price that's just too high and that we cannot afford to pay. Because where the rubber meets the road is that, let's say I'm buying 5% of your firm, Michael, you know, I'm going to receive a dividend for being a 5% owner. And that dividend is going to be the primary source of cash flow for me to pay that loan that I borrowed from, let's say, let's say, LiveOak Bank. And if I have to go from, you know, through 10 years of, you know, pain and suffering and eating ramen noodles and not being able to afford a vacation just so I can buy 5% of your firm, you know, to heck with your firm and I can probably find a career somewhere else. And that's kind of really where the rubber meets the road is ultimately the buy-in has to be affordable given the cash flow that the equity will generate, which means that ideally the new owners can finance the purchase, not entirely out of the cash flows, but just about. You know what I mean? They don't have to give up too much personal income in order to buy it. Which means in in practice, like if you're if I'm selling over five to seven years, then I'm basically going to end out selling for five to seven times free cash flow so that the thing kind of pays itself down over the time horizon? More or less, yes. I think that's the simple answer. That The thing has to sort of pay for itself. And this is the emotional barrier that founders sometimes get stuck with, which is they, they look at this transaction and say, well, the next generation is really not paying the price in blood, sweat, and tears that we paid in order to create this firm. Well, I'm imagining a firm owner is like, let me get this straight. I'm, I'm going to take cash flow that I used to have and I'm going to sell it. I'm going to sell shares to a person where the cash flow pays for itself. So like, I'm not giving them the equity, but it sort of feels like I am because I'm, I'm selling them the equity in exchange for the cash flow that I would have had that's going to pay for all the equity anyways. And not only that, but I think founders feel like they're having it too easy. They're not, they're not having to go through the sacrifices that I have to go through in order to become a, an owner. And I think the answer is, look, first of all, that's human history. That's what human history should look like. Every next generation should have it a little easier than the previous one did. Thank God we're not all, you know, hunting and gathering anymore because we learned from previous generations how to do other things. So, of course, the next generation will have it easier. Of course, I want my children to have an easier life than I had. You know, I immigrated from Bulgaria. I'm not going to ship my son back to Bulgaria just so he can retrace the same path and have it like I did. That's a ridiculous notion. So, of course, I, I think we should be happy that the next generation is having it easier. Of course, the, the next generation also can do a lot better in just showing the founder some respect and showing some appreciation that, no, it wasn't easy creating it. That, no, they actually went 10, sometimes 15 years without much of an income. And yes, they ate a lot of ramen noodles in the beginning. The next generation sometimes dismisses what the founders had to do or how much the founders had to struggle to make it happen. And I think, frankly, if founders are guilty of trying to punish the next generation just so they earn it, G2 is sometimes guilty of dismissing what the the founders had to do in order to, to create this firm. Now, the cash flow, look, even speaking of the ensemble practice, I'm keenly aware that if I keep all the, the equity and I keep all the cash flow, yeah, I will own it all, but then it will probably not be worth much and not for very long, only for as long as I'm willing to do all the things that I'm going to do and only for as long as I work. On the other hand, if I happen to sell half of my equity to my partners who are contributing to the firm, who are handling clients, who are bringing clients, who are developing intellectual property and in, 
intellectual capital who are building new things together with me, then what I retain becomes that much more profitable and becomes that much more valuable. That's the whole idea is by sharing, you grow what you keep. And by sharing what you keep becomes ultimately much more valuable than, than the things you, you, you otherwise can be holding on to. Well, and again, I think, I, I feel like that's the, that's the piece that often gets forgotten is, is what is that next generation owner do to contribute to the growth of the business once they feel like they're an owner and they have a stake in the business? You know, if, if, if you sell them, whatever it is, I mean, if you, if you sell them 10% of the business and then they help you double the business, like, Guess what? Double double the business when you still own 90% of it is worth way more than 100% of it grown on your own shoulders and only your own shoulders. Oh, yeah. The math, the, the math works in so many ways. Some point. Yeah, the math works in so many ways. But in order for this to really work the way it's supposed to, a number of factors have to be in place. The first one has to be you have to be very selective about who are your partners. And that's a mistake firms very often make. They try to please people by making them partners, but they don't really believe they have earned the right to be partners. So kind of the the difference between making someone a partner because I don't want them to leave with the clients they've got versus making someone a partner because I believe they can actually bring in more clients and grow the business. Yeah, only make partners those that are truly deserving. They have shown you the, the passion. They have shown you the capability. They have shown you the talent. Be highly selective, and I think it will be easier than to to actually share equity with those that you can see are high potential, high contributors. But but what is what does deserving mean in that context? Because I feel like again, that's different things to different people. Like when you say only give it to the partners that are deserving, what what is what do you have to demonstrate or show or do to be deserving? Always an excellent question and always a question that every firm has to ask for itself and define for itself. Much like success, it's not something you can copy and paste for the PowerPoint presentation of somebody else. Don't copy and paste partnership criteria. You have to develop your own. Generally, I would use the word contribution and in different firms, contribution will be different things. Typically, that means that that person has demonstrated that they're an excellent professional. That if it's an advisory firm, they're an amazing advisor. If it's a wealth management firm, they're a great wealth manager. If they're an investment management firm, that they really are a great investment manager. In other words, they're at the top of the professional skill skill set. Not just okay, but really they are one of the best people we have in terms of professional skills. I think number two is they have to demonstrate that they can actually maintain and retain client relationships. That we can give them clients and they can not just hold on to those clients for their life but they can actually make those clients excited about working with them. They can provide excellent client service. And again, very common mistake I see many firms where there are partners who have never been alone in a client meeting, that at the end of the day, the clients are still calling the founders when something important happens, and the other partners are more or less still helpers, second chairs. So reserve it for those that are capable of maintaining client relationships on their own and not just retaining them, but really just taking control of them. Number three, and this is a thorny subject, but I always feel that a good partner should be able to contribute to the growth of the business. You and I spoke just minutes ago about how important growth and opportunity is. If someone's going to be a partner, they got to be able to contribute to the growth of the firm. Meaning you got to be able to bring in business and get clients. You got to find new clients. And this industry, for some reason, is acting like bringing new clients is some kind of a dirty job. We only do in the dark and don't talk about it. <laughs> the evil of... of- Business development. 
Yeah, but it's a vital, vital part of being an advisor. And frankly, if advisors are really helping people, what's wrong with helping more people? Why are we so shy about it? That doesn't mean, you know, run around the neighborhood with a billboard strapped to your chest, shouting the name of your firm. Just, you know, continue looking for opportunities, continue looking for places and, and methods to grow the business. And if you're really good at what you do, you should find it not that difficult to do. Always amazes me. So, so with Omidus, time and again, I have this conversation where we're describing a professional and somebody says, well, you know, Philip is a good professional and clients really enjoy working with Philip and Philip is very good at client service, but he's really not good at business development. He's never brought in a client. And I'm thinking, okay, if we look at industry statistics coming out of Julie Little Child, not a variety of surveys, something like 60, 70% of leads come from existing clients. So how can Philip be good at servicing existing clients but not get those referrals? Something, something's wrong here. And the answer is very simple. Sort of think of the last hotel you, you went to. What was the last hotel you went to, Michael? The last hotel I went to was the Dallas Fairmont for our XYPN conference. Yeah. How was the Fairmont? It was nice. It was a good hotel. Exactly. Exactly. So, so literally that's what happens with client relationships. It's like if somebody asks, a client, how was Philip as a professional? The answer would be, yeah, he's nice, he was okay. And then the question is, would you recommend the Dallas Fairmont to a, to a, to a close friend of yours? Yeah, I guess. Like, if someone said they were going to Dallas, it's like, it was a fine place. Exactly. If someone said, well, do you know a hotel in Dallas? He may say, okay, try the Fairmont. Yeah. But, and that's the same. If someone was to say, do you know a good advisor? Someone may say, well, try Philip. You know how often clients ask around for the name of an advisor? Fairly often, but casually. According to Julie Littlechild, it's only about 1% or 2% of the time. So if you were to take 100 clients, only one of them is potentially asking for a name somewhere. You know, oh, like actually asking rare. for a name. Yeah, actually asking for a name. It's, it's very rare. And this is why, you know, supposedly good service people don't develop businesses. They're okay. They're kind of like the fairman. They're, they're, they're adequate. You know, clients are not upset and they would stay with them, but they have not created any unusual experience that will make someone go out of their way and say, you know what? You should try this place. It's an awesome place. And if you're not going to Dallas, consider going only so you can stay there. That's the kind of place that gets referrals. And that's what a referral looks like. And I think that's the reason why so many professionals are labeled as good at service, not good at business development. The reality is they're not that good at service. They're okay at service. But anyways, that, that can start, I'm starting to sound very judgmental. All I'm trying to say is that I, I think a good partner has to be really excellent in client service and has to actually contribute to the growth. They got to find a way to contribute to growth. That's not to say that people who don't bring in new clients cannot be partners. There's always careers in operations and investment management and other areas of firm that are not going to develop new business. But I would compare that to almost like the goalie on a soccer team or a hockey team, if you prefer. A good soccer team needs a good goalie, no doubt about it. And you're going to lose a lot of games if you don't have a good goalie. But if you have a team just of goalies, you're not going to win any games either. You got to find people who score. So, you know, by all means, make your goalies partners, but don't create a partnership team made out of goalies. Hmm. Well, that's a good way to put it. So as we, as we come towards the end here, the one other th curious thing I, I have to ask you, you know, you, you do a lot of consulting around 
partnerships, right, and, and introducing G2 and bringing them up. And, and I, I feel like you have a, a unique perspective on this because you've actually lived both sides. Like you, you pursued a partner track with Moss Adams from entry level analyst to becoming a partner. And then you've introduced a partner in your consulting firm. And I, I find most consulting firms are remarkably similar to advisory firms at the end of the day around what, what we do and how we're structured. So, so you live both ends of this. Any, any lessons learned from either having become a partner or having introduced a partner about how to do this well, or, or I guess alternatively what to avoid that that's been challenges you've seen going through it? I would probably say the the first lesson is really goes to G2. And it's very much my plea to them is be patient. It's a strategy with minimum chances of success, asking young people to be patient. Young people, by definition, are not patient. And they shouldn't be. But to the degree that you can, be patient. You have a long career ahead of you. You know, the day will come when you forget where you made partner in Moss Adams in eight years or was it nine years? Was it 10 years? Was it seven years? I really forget. And it really doesn't matter that much anymore. And, you know, you kind of, especially when you're younger, you almost have this sense that your career, the pinnacle of your career is going to be becoming, making partner. It absolutely is not. When you become a partner, you're just going to see another horizon of careers and opportunities and things that you want to do ahead of you. Don't rush it because it's not the finish line. It's just the beginning of another race and it's the beginning of something else. More importantly, along the way, create good relationships around you. And that's really is kind of one of the mistakes that I personally made. Be good friends with your colleagues. Learn from your colleagues. And I, I personally at times was guilty of treating them as if they're my competitors. That somehow we're all racing to become partners and there's only one partnership available. So whoever gets there first. That's not true at all. In a good firm, there's many, many opportunities to be a leader, to be a partner, to be an owner, to be a contributor. Don't treat your the rest of your team as your competitors. They are your team. They are your friends. They are the people who are going to help you. I would also say find your mentors. Most of the things I've learned, I've learned from somebody else. You know, your good mentors, you almost have to proactively go out and find them. Not every firm is going to assign you a mentor, and even the mentor you get assigned may not be the mentor you really want or the mentor that fits best with you. Look around and look look for the person that really impresses you and kind of ask yourself, who do I want to be like? And then go to that person and ask them for advice and proactively seek their guidance. And you may find that they're willing to give it, and that, that person is very, very valuable in your career. I would also say, you know... Not to be too cavalier about it, but the the sheer mechanics of compensation and partnership and buying equity and selling equity and things like that, those details are certainly important, but don't break relationships over small details. You know, once again, remember that the, a firm is almost like a ship. Let's call it a pirate ship. You know, if the ship is sinking, it doesn't matter if you're the first to drown or the, you know, the fifth. <laughs> That's a good point. If the, the ship's going down, you're kind of doomed either way. Everybody's going down. It's a, you know, a firm is a ship without lifeboats. And you've got to remember that first and foremost, the firm has to be successful. So if you have a successful firm, and if you believe this is a good firm, then, you know, look at it in a long-term view. Whatever equity you have in that firm, it will make you successful and will create wealth for you. And you also be careful. You got to look at your own plate. You know, in a restaurant, if you're, if you're going out with a group of people, that happens every time. 
as soon as the food arrives, everybody kind of starts looking around to see what everybody else got. And you can tell by their faces, they're mentally trying to decide if what they ordered was better or worse than what their neighbor ordered. In a firm, I'll probably say, look at your own plate. Too many times I've spoken with people who are bitter and having miserable time and poisoning their life with sort of thoughts about what somebody else got. They're making more money, they're less deserving, how they should be having this opportunity or that. Those things can poison your life and for no good reason. Long term, I guarantee you that almost in every single firm that I've ever worked for or worked with, those that are the best contributors tend to do well. And those that are not such good contributors, they can fake it for a while or they can, you know, grab a reward here and there that wasn't theirs to have. But long term, they just don't have that success. And then for the, all the founders, I would probably say, just pay attention to your people and spend a lot of time with your people. They need your time. It's a lot like having kids. You know, you can send them to good schools and you should. You can send them to good soccer coaches and you should. But it's nothing like playing catch in the backyard and talking to them. That's where the experience is. That's what being a parent is for. Spend more time in the backyard playing catch with your best employees because they, they are the future of your firm and not just the future. Very often they're the present of your firm. You can't achieve much past a certain stage in your career without the team around you. And, you know, that's the one lesson that I'm still trying to personally learn is how do I spend more time with my team? How do I do more for my team? Because they're doing so much for me and I can't really practice without them. Amen. Amen. Well, so as we come to the end here, and this is a show about success, and and as you noted during the discussion, success means different things to different people, sometimes different things to us at at different stages of our our career. So as we said, it, it might even take 10 to 15 years to get some sense as to what it means for you and it can evolve from there. So from your perspective, having you got kind of on the third arc of your career now, the, the first was Moss Adams, the second was as president of Fusion, now the, the third is running ensemble practice. I'm, I'm wondering what you look towards from here and how do you define success? My personal definition of success, I would love for the ensemble practice to be known as the premier consulting firm in the industry. Of course, premier is a term that by itself deserves some kind of a definition, but I would love the firm to be one of the first names that are mentioned in a conversation between advisory firms that are trying to grow faster, be more profitable, have a better partnership. I would love for us to be the firm that works with the largest, the fastest growing, the most valuable firms in the industry. Sort of, we we are defined by the success of our clients. If our clients are successful, we are successful. And we would like to work with the most successful firms in the industry. And we'd like to contribute to that success, not just be the beneficiaries of it, but we'd like to, to contribute to that success. And, you know, in some interesting ways, I would love if, you know, you're recording this podcast, let's say, 10 years down the road, I would love for you to be recording it with one of my partners, perhaps a partner that doesn't even work for me at this point in time. And, you know, maybe she or he mentions me in the conversation or maybe they don't. And that's a good thing. I would love for the ensemble practice to be a true ensemble. (laughs) Let's put it that way. I love that. I love that. Nothing better than building ensemble practice towards being an ensemble practice. Well, thank you so much for joining us and sharing some of your own story and journey and, and wisdom and insight about what it takes to, to build an ensemble practice. 
Thanks a bunch, Michael. It was a pleasure. As always, it's a pleasure talking to you. I feel like you and I have had this conversation probably in a bar many times at different conferences or at least segments of it. So I very much appreciated the invitation and hope you have a great week ahead of you. Wonderful. Thank you. You too. Thanks a bunch. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.